Well, good morning, folks. This morning's message is called Golgotha, and we're going to be turning our attention to the cross and the death of Jesus. But I want to start today by showing you a picture of an iceberg. The thing about icebergs, as you can hopefully see in the picture, is that only about 10% of the iceberg lies above the water. About the other 90% is hidden down beneath. This, of course, was disastrous for the Titanic. Had it just crashed into what you can see above the surface, uh, it might not have sank at all. But below the waterline, the iceberg was far bigger and more devastating for the ship's hull than anything above the water would suggest. That's one reason it's important to know the true size of an iceberg. But another reason to recognise an iceberg's true proportions is that if we don't, if we only ever look at pictures of them from sea level, we'll miss something awesome and beautiful to behold. So much of their grandeur and mystery and majesty lies down beneath the water. And I want to suggest this morning that Jesus' death on the cross is somewhat like an iceberg. It's like an iceberg in the deadly Titanic sense, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 about how Christ's crucified is a stumbling block to those who refuse to believe in him. If we don't see and put our trust in the true reality of what Christ did on the cross, it will spell disaster for us. But the cross is also like an iceberg in the beautiful, majestic sense, that if we can truly see beneath the surface and see what's really going on at the cross, we will see something that will leave us not only awestruck, but which has the power to transform our lives and our relationship with God forever. Now, like the iceberg, the surface level human perspective on the cross is the easier one to see. It's the one that everybody immediately grasps and understands whether they're a Christian or not, that Christ was betrayed, arrested, tried and crucified. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's what was happening from a divine perspective below the surface what happened between Christ and God at the cross that's far more significant, profound and life-changing for all who are willing to dive down into it and see. This morning, Matthew's Gospel is going to help us to dive down beneath the surface and see the cross for ourselves from a divine perspective. The question Matthew's going to help us answer this morning is this. What really happened to Christ on the cross? And we'll also see along the way what this means for you and me. So let's read from Matthew chapter 27, verses 32 to 50. Matthew 27, verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry Jesus's cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him 
wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, much of the first half of what we've just read describes the cross from that surface level human perspective. Matthew describes what happens between Jesus and those who are responsible for putting him to death, though there are clues even there to its deeper significance. But it's from verses 45 to 50 that Matthew's account really begins to dive down under the water and focus in on what is happening to Jesus from a divine perspective. It's here that we really start to see what is occurring between God the Father and Christ, his incarnate Son. So those are the verses that we're going to focus on now for about the next 20 minutes together. And what we're going to find is Matthew highlighting three things taking place below the surface that day as Christ, the Son of God, was crucified. First, that Christ was cursed. Second, that Christ was forsaken. Third, that Christ was finished. First of all, then, Christ was cursed. Mark's gospel tells us that it was the third hour, that's 9 a.m., when Jesus was lifted up on the cross to be crucified. So for three long hours from 9 a.m. to midday, he hangs there in broad daylight. The soldiers below dividing his clothes between them while passers-by, religious leaders and even the robbers crucified next to him deride him and scorn him and mock him. But then, three hours in, something truly unexpected occurs. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That is from noon until 3 p.m. In the very middle of the day, pitch darkness falls across the whole land. And this is no gradual growing gloom like we might experience when dark clouds slowly creep in across the sky. This darkness descends in an instant, as if someone has just flicked the off switch on the noonday sun. As Luke describes it in his gospel, it's as if the light of the sun has failed. Clearly, this is no natural darkness with a natural explanation. There's numerous reasons, for instance, why this can't just be an eclipse, not least because for three whole hours, the midday sun is cloaked in darkness. This is a supernatural darkness and one that is loaded with divine meaning and significance for anyone who is willing to see. 
As those who knew their Old Testaments there that day would have realised, darkness was a clear sign of God's displeasure, of his judgment against human wickedness, of his curse against man's sin. The supreme example of this, of course, was in the last but one of the Egyptian plagues. Just before the Passover and the sacrifice of the Passover lambs, just before the death of the firstborn sons, God plunged Egypt into complete darkness for three whole days. A darkness so black and thick that God described it to Moses as a darkness that could be felt. And it wasn't just in Exodus that this link between darkness and God's judgment was made. The Old Testament prophets also spoke of a greater day of judgment to come when God would judge the sins of the whole world. A day of wrath is that day, Zephaniah 1.15. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. And on that day, Amos 8 verse 9 declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. So you see, all of the signs are there. Three days of darkness in Egypt, now three hours of darkness at Golgotha. The sun going down precisely at noon, the earth being darkened in the, in the broad daylight middle of the day. This is a day of judgment. And really, what more fitting day could there be for God to finally come and punish human evil than on the day when humanity chose to crucify God's son? Was there ever a more wicked day in all of human history? A day more fitting for God to reveal his holy hostility against all of humanity's sin? We shouldn't be shocked that this darkness has fallen that on this day God has come in judgment against our sin. But what is truly shocking is on who this darkness has come upon. What is truly shocking is on who God's wrath is now being poured. Because amazingly, this curse is not falling upon those who are doing the crucifying. Those guilty of killing God's son, it's falling on the one who is being crucified. The darkness of God's judgment has come to crush his own son. That's what's incredible about this darkness. That the darkness of God's judgment should descend upon Christ. That it is Christ who is hanging cursed upon a tree. That it is Christ who has been lifted up like a lightning rod between heaven and earth. Suspended between the dark sky of God's judgment above and the blackness of human sin below that the light of the world, the one who came to bring light to those who sit in darkness, is now himself engulfed in the most terrible darkness. That is what is so shocking here. And the question we have to ask is why? Why is God's judgment against a whole world of sin being focused and funneled down and poured out entirely on his spotless and innocent son? The answer, woven not just throughout Matthew, but throughout every book and page of the Bible, is that Jesus was there as our substitute. That in our place, condemned he stood, suffering under the darkness of a punishment that rightly belonged to you and me. 
As Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Or as Paul explains in Galatians 3, in order to redeem us from the curse of the law, Christ became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then we learn still more about this curse and its cost as we read on and hear Jesus himself cry out that he has been forsaken. That's the second thing that we hear, see here this morning in these verses. Christ was forsaken. Verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Crucifixion was, of course, a brutal way to die. From the time of his trial where he was beaten and flogged through to his being nailed to a cross and lifted up slowly to die, Jesus would have been experiencing the most excruciating physical pain. But the agony that he is now feeling runs far deeper than mere physical pain. Quoting the words of David from Psalm 22, the Son of God cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Richard Allen Bodie writes, nowhere in all the Bible do we encounter any mystery that so staggers the mind and shocks the Christian consciousness as this tortured cry from the lips of our dying Saviour. This awesome, haunting protest screamed into the darkened heavens brings us to the heart of the atonement. Already Jesus has been abandoned by his friends, condemned by his own people, and taunted by his enemies. But now here his words reveal a far more devastating kind of abandonment. He has been forsaken by his father, cut off from his loving presence. And it's, it's almost unfathomable to imagine what this must have meant for him, that Christ the incarnate son, who had never known anything but perfect, uninterrupted, joy-filled fellowship with his father should now be utterly forsaken and cut off. This here was what he had dreaded when he prayed in Gethsemane and sweated great drops of blood. That The physical pain of the cross was terrible, but the spiritual agony of separation from the father was the ultimate torture for Jesus. But why? Why would the father turn his face away from his only beloved son? Why would God forsake him in the hour of his greatest need? Because as Martin Luther once wrote, our most merciful father, seeing us to be oppressed and overwhelmed with the curse of the law so that we could never be delivered from it by our own power, sent his only son into the world and laid upon him all the sins of all men, saying, Be thou Peter that denier, Paul that persecutor, blasphemer and cruel oppressor, David that adulterer, that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise, that thief which hanged upon the cross, and briefly, Be thou the person which hath committed the sins of all men. See therefore that thou pay and satisfy for them all. It is sin that separates man from God. 
And at the cross, God clothed Christ in all of our sin. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He laid on him the sins of the whole world. How then must God now treat the one who bears all that vast immensity of sin? C.J. Mahaney says the incarnate son must be forsaken by the father because the father is holy and there in the father's sight is the most grotesque display of ugliness imaginable. It's the monstrous sight of the unbounded totality of human sin resting upon one man. Therefore, that man must be utterly removed from the presence of the holy God, utterly separated as far as the east is from the west. Jesus doesn't just feel forsaken, he is forsaken. In an unfathomable mystery at that moment, as God's wrath is poured upon him as the substitute for our sin, Jesus is rejected by God. The Father hides his face from him. It's not that God the Father isn't still present at the cross, of course, but he's only there now in wrath and judgment, pouring out upon his own Son the full recompense for our sin. Jesus is experiencing our judgment day, our judgment day, so that all who look to him to be saved will never, ever have to experience judgment day for themselves. And Jesus is utterly alone. For the first time ever, his prayers are met with silence. When he was in agony in Gethsemane, anticipating the cross, God sent an angel from heaven to strengthen him. But now crying out into the darkness at Golgotha, there is no hint of mercy for him. There cannot be mercy for him. Not if there is to be abundant mercy for you and for me. God has made him the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the cost of our redemption. Cursed, forsaken, and finally finished. Bringing us to our third and final point for this morning. Christ was finished. Look at verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus died. And death is, we tend to think, the great finisher of all things. Death is the thing that usually brings all of our hopes and dreams to an end. Death finishes us off. That's what makes it so fearful and dreadful. And at first glance, it might seem like death essentially finished off Jesus too, that all those hopes that were invested in him were finished and broken by his death. And he really did die, of course. There was no last minute escape for Jesus, like you'd expect from a hero in a movie. As Romans 6.23 tells us, the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus had to not just suffer, but ultimately die to pay our debt. We're told in John's Gospel what it was that he cried out with his last living breath. It is finished. But in what way was it finished? In what way was he finished? Did death really finish him off? Interestingly, Matthew doesn't record those final words of Jesus like John does for us to tell us Jesus is finished. 
Instead, Matthew simply shows us. He shows us what it is that is finished in Jesus's death. Are you ready for this? Uh, We stopped short of reading these verses at the beginning, but let's read them now from verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. And so Matthew shows us In what sense Christ was finished at the cross? He was finished in achieving all that he had come to accomplish. Death and sin's curse did not finish off Jesus. No, Jesus, by his sacrifice, finished off sin and death. And we see it most vividly of all uh, here in these verses, not wanting to jump ahead and spoil the resurrection message that Pete's going to bring next Sunday, but we see it most vividly in this morning's passage in what Matthew tells us about the curtain in the temple. As Jesus breathed his last breath and died, that great four inch thick, 18 meter high curtain in the temple that surrounded the Holy of Holies, the ultimate no entry sign that proclaimed man's separation from God because of sin, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom ripped apart by Christ's finished work on the cross so that hell-deserving sinners could be welcomed safely in. Meaning that now all who put their trust in Jesus can boldly enter into the holy places, into the very presence of God by the blood of Jesus. This is the great and glorious exchange. This is what lies below the waterline of the cross, if only we'll look close enough to see. Because Christ was shut out, we enter in. Because he was punished, we can be forgiven. Because he was abandoned, we will never be alone. Because he was forsaken, God will never leave nor forsake us. Because he endured the darkness, our night has been turned into day. Because he was cut off from his father, nothing shall ever separate us from the love of God. Because he was treated like the chief of sinners, we can be treated like sons and daughters. Because he defeated death, we can be delivered from the fear of death. Because he rose from the dead, we will be raised to glorious resurrection life with him. Through Christ's death, the gates of the kingdom of heaven have been thrown wide open And the question is, can you see it? And will you enter in? In our final verse for this morning, verse 54, that we read a moment ago, Matthew tells us about one man who did see it and did decide to believe and enter in. As one commentator captures it, he says, the very man who has just presided over his death confesses surely he was the son of God. The very man who killed the Prince of Life is seen going, as it were, through that split curtain with his sins pardoned and his welcome secure. 
Now this centurion, as much as anyone else, started out his day looking at Jesus on the cross and only seeing the tip of the iceberg. But by the end of the day, his eyes have been opened and his life has been transformed. The question is, how did he come to believe? Where did his new faith come from? It came from watching and seeing how Christ died. It came from paying attention to what really took place at the cross, looking below the surface, just as we've been doing this morning. He witnessed the darkness in the middle of the day. He heard Jesus' cries of God forsakenness. He heard his last words, it is finished. And finally, Matthew tells us he saw the earthquake and the open tombs and perhaps even heard what had happened in the temple. He looked and saw and filled with awe, the centurion came to believe. Are you willing to do the same this morning? If you started out today not yet a believer, are you willing to look now and see and believe what you've heard? And for those of us who are already believers this morning, we know the massive significance of Jesus' death. We know and believe that he died on the cross in our place. But how often day to day do we look again below the waterline? Not simply seeing the tip of the iceberg that yes, Christ died, but diving again and again down beneath the surface to plumb the depths of what the Bible says he sacrificed on our behalf and accomplished on the cross for us. We will never fully plumb the depths of the cross or exhaust its matchless beauty. But it's precisely because its glory runs so deep down that we can know there is always more waiting there for us to discover and see and adore. Easter is a perfect time to look again at the cross, but really it's something that'll do good to our souls every day of the year. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your great mercy and in order to redeem a people for yourself, you sent your own son into the darkness of sin and death so that we might be rescued and forgiven and brought into your marvellous light. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to be cursed and forsaken for us, to take upon yourself the judgment we deserved. And we thank you that your work is now finished, that you paid for our redemption in full and that the light of your gospel has shone into our lives. Holy Spirit, we ask, help us to dive deeper into the glories of Calvary this Easter and far beyond Easter as well. Help us together to keep plumbing its depths every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.